Welcome and thank you for joining Save Our Sisters Unplugged. If you're looking for a sisterhood of intelligent women to network with, then this is a podcast for you. We'll be letting our hair down and spilling all the tea on an array of topics and gain insight into what women really think. My name is Noreen Foy and I'll be your host. Now let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Save Our Sisters Unplugged podcast. I am so excited for today's guest because we are new friends and I already think she is a dope queen. She is a mental health clinician. She has a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. She is the CEO and founder of Faithful LLC, which is a full service coaching firm. And finally, she is the host of the Hey Queen Thrive podcast. (laughs) It is my honor to introduce Miss Leah Forney. Welcome, girly. Thank you, girl. How are you doing? I am great. I've been having a day. Um, the technology <laughs> is, is working against me today, but we're on and we're here, yeah. so we're good. Technology, right? I always, I, I always say it's like, they call it what, like smartphone, smart tech. I'm like, sometimes it's dumb all at the same time. <laughs> well, sometimes I just need to have the dumb stuff. I mean, not saying that I'm dumb, but I'm just not as quick as the technology. <laughs> right. Because it's a little more advanced than most of us. So I feel you. I'm a 70s baby, honey. It's going to take me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so last month we celebrated Women's History. And so, of course, you know, I want to keep this going because we should always celebrate women. And uh, we have so many great women out here doing great things. There was uh, people just celebrating back and forth on their own platforms, just having all these lives and just pulling women up. And I just loved it. I got to be a part of it. So here we are today with you and you're going to share your story on how you turn your pain into power. So, Leah, what was your childhood like? Like, what was your family dynamic like? You know, my childhood dynamic was very dysfunctional. So I am the daughter of two addicts. Um, My mom has been a drug addict basically since she conceived me. My dad was an alcoholic and in and out of prison. So I was actually raised by my maternal grandparents and my aunts. Um, It was me, the oldest girl, my older brother, and then one of my sisters that came right after me. Um, so growing up was pretty rough, right? Like it was pretty rough. You know, when you're not raised with your parents, you definitely feel like something is missing. You definitely feel like, uh, some abandonment issues and rejection is happening there. So I was the angry kid, contrary to what people believe. I was the angry kid. Um, I did a lot of lashing out. I did a lot of physically fighting. My grandmother, she used to always say that she was terrified that I was either going to end up dead or in jail before, you know, the age of 25, because I was just that kid. But I found very early on, probably about 10, 11 years old, writing was like a moment of therapy for me. So I walked around a lot with just a notebook and pen and anything that just came to me, I wrote. Um, I do believe that I was writing to escape my reality. I did not want to face the fact that I wasn't being raised by my parents. I grew up in Jamaica, Queens, New York, where a lot of my friends had both mom and dad, and I was the odd one being raised by my grandparents. So to avoid having to answer those questions about, well, where's my parents, right? Um, I just came up with elaborate stories. And so I started writing 
little short stories and came up with these imagination stories about who my parents really were. So when people would ask, I would say stuff like, oh, my dad's a top secret agent on a mission, you know, <laughs> because it was easier to say that than to say he's incarcerated. Right. And so right. I did little things like that to just escape the reality. But I was the kid that back in the eighties, they used to call them crack babies. I was born addicted to crack cocaine because my mom did it while she was carrying me. Uh, and so doctors said from birth that I would not live past the age of five. And if I did, I would have all these disformities, all these delays, but God had other plans because I have successfully not only lived past the age of five, but I have nothing wrong with me. Look and so, God. yeah. So he knew where I would be before I knew where I would be. Right. Um, but yeah, very dysfunctional. Grew up around domestic violence, you know, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of drug addiction, just things that kids shouldn't see. Right. Um, I saw, and I always tell people, I feel like I never really had a childhood. I kind of had to grow up fast um, because of what I was experiencing as a young girl. I could see how you could grow up fast in an environment like that. And um, living with your grandparents, how did you still grow up with that dynamic? Yeah. So my grandmother tried her best to raise us in the church. Um, so she did a lot of taking us to, you know, church, Bible study, you know, Sunday school, really trying to root us in the, the belief of Jesus Christ. Um, but as a young girl, it was kind of like I was just doing it because you wanted me to do it. Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily think anything about religion. Um, I didn't even believe that God was even real, to be honest with you, Noreen. Um, it wasn't until, I'll, I'll tell you, when I was about 16, 17 years old, my grandmother sat me down and she was like, now nah, listen, I'm not going to force you to go to church no more. Like he now has to become your God because you can't keep riding off of grandma's relationship with him. You got to have one for yourself. So I did what normal 17 year olds do. I lived my life like church what I don't gotta go no more so I'm partying I'm hanging out with the wrong crowd I'm looking for love in all the wrong places I'm gravitating to older men as a young girl and it wasn't until I ended up in an abusive relationship at the age of 19 20 years old and I just went back to you know the scripture tells you that if you train up a child in the way that they should go that when they get old they will not depart from that way absolutely and I remember being in this very toxic relationship I even moved in with the guy and he was cheating he was abusive he was a drunk so a lot of the same things that my parents were I, I ended up dating men just like my dad and so the very last time that he came home drunk and proceeded to beat me, I barricaded myself in our bedroom. And I just remember crying out to God. I didn't know if he was going to hear me. I didn't know if he still cared. Like, I didn't know anything. I just went back to what my grandmother had raised me in, which is that you seek, you pray, you talk to him. And I just remember just saying, God, I don't know if you're going to hear me, but if you do hear me, please get me out of this situation. And I promise that if you do so, I will serve you with my whole life. Literally the very next morning, the guy woke up and was like, get out. Wow. And I knew then that God had hurt me. Like I had, I knew then that I wasn't as far away from his grace and his love and his mercy that I thought I was. And that all he was waiting for me was to really just cry out to him. And so from that moment, I, I started to make my commitment to try to get back in church, start reading his word, um, 
still struggled though. Like, right. Still dealt with the abandonment issues, still battling through the anger, um, still just trying to figure this thing called life out, you know, but this time I felt like, right. This time I felt like, okay, even while I'm trying to figure it out, I'm not really figuring it out by myself. Like I now have this, I'm developing this walk in this relationship Mm -hmm. with God. And I tell anybody, when you make a commitment to God, like you might as well get your track shoes on because the devil's coming. So oh, yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> He's ready to come right for you. But I still had those struggles, but I just knew I had to trust my own process and trust God in the process um, as he developed me into the woman that, that people see today. Well, you know, I always say that God is always training people for their true purpose when he brings them through all that pain that they go through. Um, because you go through certain things sometimes in order for you to help somebody else through it. Right. And I want to go back to, if you don't mind, I want to go back to when you were younger, like having your parents be who they are, who told you that you were a crack baby and how old were you when you learned that? So I overheard it and I overheard it because my grandmother, she was, I see, I understand now how she was just trying to protect her grandkids. But I always knew something wasn't right because even when we would go to the doctor's appointment and the doctor would ask, oh, what are your relationship? And she would be like, oh, that's my grandchild. And then they would ask you about the parent. It was always this, like, we got to talk about that behind closed doors kind of thing. So I always paid attention. I've always been an observant child. Still to this day, I'm very observant. I pay attention to every little thing. And so I would pay attention to these things. And I just remember, you know, coming from one doctor's appointment and overhearing my grandparents talking about um, some of the things that the doctors were sharing about being addicted to drugs and what could be. And that's when I really discovered it. Um, It really wasn't until probably when I was 17, 18, when me and my grandmother really had the conversation and she shared with me about like, yeah, you were born addicted to drugs. Um, and she was like, you know, unfortunately my mom had a total of six kids. So me and my baby brother were actually the only two that really were born addicted to drugs. Um, she did her drugs the heaviest when she was pregnant with us two. Um, but I overheard it the very first time. And I think for a while, I didn't know how to approach the conversation. So I kind of didn't say nothing, but I was, I was probably about 12, 13, the first time I overheard it. And then it was like, okay, as I was getting older and really, cause by this time, my dad, he was no longer in the picture. He was incarcerated. I had no connection to my father's side of the family. So as I was getting older, I started getting more inquisitive and curious about where I came from, who I look like, because all I knew was my mom's side. So I'm like, my mom's a dark skinned woman. So I'm like, I know I don't look like my mom, right. my brother look just like my mom. So where do I come from? So as I started getting older and really started asking questions, um, that's when some, some truths began to come out. Mm. You know, when you heard that you were addicted to drugs in that moment as a young adolescent, yeah. when you heard it in that moment, what were you thinking? You know what? I think for me, it was such a surreal moment because I don't even think I understood what addiction was. And I'll be honest with you, learning like I didn't really understand the full brunt of addiction until I went to grad school and got my master's and started working in the field of mental health 
and specializing in addictive behavior um, to really understand the disease of addiction. Like, I think for a long time, addiction, drugs, all that was kind of thrown around, but I didn't really understand it. So I think as a young adolescent, it was like, okay, wondering if that means something's wrong with me, right? Right. Like that's initially, that's my thought process. Like, so does that mean something wrong with me? Uh Like when you tell somebody that they were born addicted to something. um, But again, God had other plans because nothing to this day has ever been wrong with me. So. Oh, definitely. You definitely were spared for a higher purpose for sure. So did that knowledge make you feel any differently about your parents? You know what's so funny? I've always had and this really weird relationship dynamic about my, especially my mom. Um, and the relationship feeling that I always had was like, it was hard for me to dislike her or hate her because in my mind, because of the fantasies I created writing all these years, like I saw her on this much higher pedestal. Like she was like a superhero to me, even Mm -hmm. though she never raised me. Right. So I always had this weird dynamic of like, I love her, but I don't like her, but I love her, but that's my mom all at the same time. And so it's, it was just like, I don't even know how to look at her at the moment. And, and it took me a long time to get to a place where I could accept that my mom was just another human being. Because I think a lot of times as children, we definitely place a whole lot of value on our parents and we see them like higher than we probably should. Yes. But that's because they're our parents, right? Yes. But it isn't until we recognize the humanity of who our parents are. And, and that comes with like living life and going through your own experiences where you begin to like recognize like oh wow my mom's a human being and she has frailties and flaws and she makes mistakes just like every other human being and she's trying to navigate this thing called life just like every other human being but that reality didn't even come to me until I was an adult but as a young girl she was my superhero yeah absolutely I I totally agree with you with everything that you're saying um, because yeah, we do look at them differently. We look at them as mom and dad, you know, they keep us safe. They, well, they should keep us safe. They feed us, they clothe us, they take us to school to buy us things that we need, you know, but we don't think of them as people. I, myself, I didn't, um, I didn't know who my parents were until I was completely already a married woman. Like I didn't understand who they were, what made them tick, you know, and through life, of course, dad it was a storyteller. So he always told us about life growing up in the British Virgin Islands. And I'm here for it. I'm like, you know, I'm like on the floor. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for the story. <laughs> yeah. like pillow. I'm ready, you know, but I never knew who he was or who my mom was through mm-hmm. knowing them like you would a friend or, yeah. or getting to know a girlfriend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a new girlfriend. Yeah. Like you see her, you're standoffish, and then you start talking to them and, mm-hmm. and you find out that you got things. It's almost like dating, but you find out you got all these things in common and you're like, oh, okay. You know, and then you start getting to know the essence of who they are. Yeah. Um, so I, I totally understand that. So what is your relationship between you and your parents now? Yeah. So my dad passed away uh, three years ago. We never kind of reconciled our relationship um, he loved the bottle more than he loved his kids. So as I got older, what I found was that my dad and I were in a very toxic, abusive relationship. So it was kind of like the repetitive cycle that I had dating because when he was drinking, 
he was horrible with his words. You know, he would say things that he shouldn't have said. And so again, having that internal struggle of like, but this is my dad and I want to love him and I want to be like the best daughter in the world. But then also recognizing that even if they're family, like you don't have to deal with their toxicity and that it's okay to put the boundary up and that it's okay to disconnect. And so it was very hard because I'm a daddy's girl. I'm his firstborn daughter. Like, mm-hmm. look just like him, mm-hmm. like daddy's girl. Like when he was not a drinking and he was sober, that was my guy. Like we hang out, we go eat. We like, that was my guy. So it hurt me to have to distance myself from him. And so we were still estranged when he passed away. Um, and I think I, I try not to live my life in regret, but that's probably one of my biggest regrets is never being able to kind of have those final moments with him because yeah. he, again, he loved that bottle more than he loved his kids. Um, my mom, we still estranged as well. She still battles with addiction. She's still out there. Um, and it took me a while to get to that place with her because I was my mom's caregiver for a very long time. Like every time she ended up in the hospital, they were calling my phone, you know, probably a year and a half ago, I went as far as even getting her into like a nursing facility because she was declining really bad in health. And she still made the decision to like go back out and do drugs, even after suffering through a massive stroke and surviving. And so having to again be like I gotta detach I gotta put the boundary because by this point in my life my whole being was consumed around my parents and my grandparents were like Leah you can't keep living your life based on your parents like you can't keep sacrificing your happiness and everything you want to be and do because the minute they call you drop everything and run and that was my life it, it was just almost this feeling of like, I felt indebted because you're my parents, right? I, but not I agree realizing. with what grandma said. Yeah, I had to learn to detach. I had to put the boundaries. It was very, very hard to do, but making the decision to choose me and say to my mom, especially um, because by the time I had to, my dad had already passed, but to say to her, like, I can't do this no more. Like, I can't keep fighting for you. You're going to have to fight for yourself at this point. Uh, it was hard because I'm a, again, even though I'm a, I'm a girl dad, I'm a, I'm a girl mom all day. Like I love my parents. So having to separate the two and kind of keep that distance until she can get her life together, it was difficult. And I had to pray and ask God to get me through it. But I, I, I had to do what I had to do to protect me so that I could free myself in order for me to really start living my life. I agree. And, you know, I'm wondering if your mom kept going back because that's all she knew, because maybe if she got clean, then you would have a new set of accountability for her. Yeah. You know, she would have to be accountable for all the things that she's doing now. And she probably wasn't ready for that. You think? Yeah, I think that. And I also think that I was my mom's enabler, you know, out of all her children, I was the one that was always Mm -hmm. team mom. It was like, Okay, she called, like, I call my older brother, my sisters, and they're like, why are you calling me talking about this woman? Like, they had completely emotionally, like, severed it. And for me, it was just like, but that's mom. So what I learned in that was that the little girl version of me was still earning 
for her parents while the adult yep. version of me was like yeah this is toxic and this is not working i was so just I about to, to say that too i was just yeah, about to it was say a that war. it was a war yeah i was just about to say that you're still a child even though you're an adult you're still a child that wants the parents to love them yep they're, no matter what they're doing or no matter how toxic they are you still want to have that yeah but at a certain age like you said the adult part of you had to come to some realization that listen this is not gonna change dad's mm -hmm. gone and mom is still in this world and you have to make that choice because essentially if you don't make that choice for yourself you can get pulled in too oh yeah and that's where it was honestly that's where it was because the day before my mom well two days before my mom actually suffered the stroke I got a phone call three o'clock in the morning from a drug dealer. She gave a drug dealer my phone number wow. and basically had her hostage and was like, your mom owes me this amount of money and drugs. Like you either going to pay it or she's going to die. And I remember being so livid, like first and foremost, how dare you give some drug dealer my number? Second of all, <laughs> like how dare you get me and my family caught up in your crap? Like I was so livid. And I remember calling my grandmother and her talking me down and she was peed off too. And then two days later, I get a phone call again, five o'clock in the morning. And I promise you, Normie, I didn't even want to answer the phone. And the Holy Spirit said, pick up the phone. Uh -huh. And when I picked up the phone, it was the hospital. Only this time they were calling me to tell me that my mom had been severely beaten, that she had suffered a stroke, that there was a massive blood clot traveling to her brain. And that if I didn't give them permission to do emergency surgery she was going to die oh so my literally my mom's life was in my hands and i was like do whatever you gotta do <laughs> you know like yeah. I, what do you, i mean I'm what do you say, say. yeah right. what do you say nope let her go no nope, right. it was just one of those like do what you gotta again the little girl wanting her mom like save her and so i remember my grandmother called my aunt called and we didn't think she was even going to make it through this surgery like did not think it we're on the phone literally talking about okay so are we gonna plan a funeral what are we like oh my didn't gosh. make think it was gonna happen and when she did i literally was like okay god you you saving her for some reason what that reason is i don't know but you saved her for some reason yeah so yeah, to see her have to recover from that and learn to walk again and learn to talk again, and then to still go back to out to a life of drugs once she got back on her feet, it was just mind boggling to me. It was like, wait a minute, God just saved your whole life <laughs> and you still want the drug? Still want, yeah. You know, that's the unfortunate part about it is you cannot control what they're doing. Her mind is already fixed that this is her life. This is her purpose. And she doesn't know how to get out of that cycle, that hamster wheel of life. Yeah. So you have to make that choice like, hey, you know what? I have to walk away from this or else it'll consume me. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know? So let's just... um Let's go back to your boyfriend you were sharing the apartment with. Mm -hmm. So you've had a hurtful childhood and now you have this um, toxic relationship with your boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And then you shared with me, you had the sexual assault. Yeah. Um, so I know you wanted to share that story and I mm -hmm. really appreciate you wanting to open up. And just to be clear uh, for our listeners, sexual assault is defined as any kind of sexual activity that's unwanted, imposed by one person or more 
on another without consent. And it may include the use of physical force. And it could um, involve some combination of coercion, threats, intimidation. Tell me what you can about your experience. Yeah. So after I got out of that abusive relationship, um, I actually ended up leaving New York. I moved to Philadelphia for a short period of time with my father's side of family because by this time I had connected with them and me and my grandmother, um, my dad's mom, we were starting to build this relationship. And so I just needed out. I was ready for a fresh start. I was like, all right, I'm leaving. So we were in Philadelphia for a short period of time when she told me she was moving to North Carolina. And I was like, well, can I go? And she was like, yeah, that's what you want to do. So I made the decision to move down to North Carolina. Um, And so we moved to North Carolina and we moved there February of 2011. So I was fairly new to the state still. And um, I met a guy and I met the guy actually because he worked at the car rental place. So I was driving my little hoopty by this time. (laughs) And I didn't know nothing about like, you know, lemons. And if you buy a car and it don't last, it's like, you know, like I was just excited that I had a car. So I had my car (laughs) broke down on me. My hoopty broke down on me. And I was just like, all right, well, I'm not really sure how I'm going to get around. Because once you get comfortable driving, you don't want to get on public transportation. No, absolutely not. I'm from New York. So all I knew was public transportation. But by this time, I felt like, you know, I'm a little bougie now. Like I got a car. So I tried to, (laughs) right. You've leveled up. I was like, well, maybe I'll go rent a car. So I went to the local um, car rental place where I met the guy who actually ended up raping me. Um, And I couldn't, you know, again, not knowing much about renting cars and all this other stuff and the ins and outs to that, I couldn't rent the car. So he actually offered to drive me to my place. Hence the reason why he knew where I live. So he tried to be, you know, he was very charming and you know, asked me like how long I've been in the city and all this stuff. And I was like, oh no, I'm just still fairly new. I only been here about a little over a year and a half and all these things. And he offered to take me to dinner. And so again, being new, not having much friends, I was like, oh, okay, that sounds nice. Whatever. We had exchanged numbers. We went out to dinner one time and it was just something about him that just didn't feel right to me. Like I tell people, all women have intuition, like pay attention to it when your gut is telling you like, "Eh, something is really off about this person. So I stopped seeing him. I just didn't care to continue to try to see, explore anything with the guy. Um, Little did I know though, Noreen, like he started stalking me. So I was in um, Durham, North Carolina. And if you know anything about Durham, North Carolina, it's not that huge of a city. Like it's really not like you can get to anything anywhere in Durham in like 10, 15 minutes okay. driving. Yeah. Like it's not that of a city. So literally it was almost like anywhere that I was, he just showed up. And at the time, like, I don't think I even recognized that that's what was happening. Uh-huh. It was just kind of moments of like, this is weird. Like, how did you know I was going to be here? And I could tell you like the one incident that I knew I was like, this man has to be following me. I actually ended up getting another car and some way, somehow, like I hydroplaned on the car off like some water and ended up in a ditch. It was like something straight out of a movie. Like I, I kid you not. And I wasn't hurt or anything, but even passerbyers stopped and was like, oh my God, like they thought I was really bad because of the way I ended up in this ditch. So I'm standing there 
talking to the police, talking about the car and all that. And literally, as I'm talking, literally, he's driving past the scene. And I'm just like, yeah, very awkward. (laughs) So fast forward, January 27, 2013, a couple of days before my birthday. um, I was home at the time because by then I still didn't have a new car. And the church that I was attending, we were having afternoon service instead of morning service. So I was waiting for somebody to come pick me up. On that same day, one of our church members had passed away. So I I get the phone call and I'm like really distraught. Like, oh my God, I can't believe so-and-so is gone. And as soon as I hang up, the guy called and he can hear that I'm like distraught. And he's like, is everything okay? And I'm like, no, somebody close to me passed away. And he's just like trying to get me to let him come over to console me. That's what he said he was coming to do. Um, and you ever have one of those moments where you're just like, I, I shouldn't, but I, you know, like, you know, like that you just, you're really, yeah. but it's like, ah, okay, fine. Cause you're just going to keep saying something about it. So I, I said, okay, fine. I mean, literally he was at my door within minutes. So again, later I learned that he was already sitting outside my apartment when he made the phone call. Oh my goodness. So he comes over and what was supposed to be a moment of like him consoling was him really starting to berate me about how I rejected him after our first date and he felt some type of way about it. And so it just got real uncomfortable and awkward real quick. And I remember just asking him repeatedly to leave. Like I was like, can you just go? Cause this is getting really uncomfortable. Um, And so when I thought he was going to leave, he actually grabbed me and backed me into a corner and see the apartment that I was in at the time, it wasn't that big. So it was like this little tight corner and he backed me up in there. And that's when he proceeded to rape me. Um, And I tell anybody, I still remember nine years later, how he just told me that he was going to make it so that no other man would want me. Oh my God. And that he was like, this was him like taking control over my life. So after he violated me, he left like it was no problem. Like he got on the phone, was calling one of his friends, like nothing happened. And I was left there distraught and not knowing what to do. So initially my thought process was like, I'm about to get in the shower, right? I know now right. that was probably the wrong thing to do because technically you're now evidence of a crime. Exactly. But That's I didn't know that. You. Yeah. Right. And, and most victims don't know that they're in their mind is like, I just want to get this person sent and older and all that off of me. So I just remember being in the shower scrubbing until I couldn't scrub no more until my skin became raw, just trying to get him off of me. And by the time it happened, my friend who I was waiting on to come get me pulled up and she's like, what is wrong with you? And I began to tell her what happened. And she was like, Lee, you got to call the cops. And I was just like, no, I can't because I should technically shouldn't let him in the house and then like all these things I'm starting to feel like I can't do this. Cause you're so, putting it all on yourself. You're making it like right, it's your fault. Right. So immediately I just, I was like, no, I can't. And I'm like telling her, swearing her to secrecy. Like you can't tell nobody and, and everything. But in that moment, my life changed and for, it took me two days. Um, and it wasn't until my spiritual mom, um, who is the, the, she was the mom of a rapist, actually. Her son was doing time for sexually violating women. So she had this really big heart for victims of sexual assault because she had been on the other did. side 
and never thought that her son would turn out to be that kind of person. So I went to her crying in church and I told her, I was like, I was raped on Sunday. And immediately she just hugged me and she was like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Like she just looked at me. It's not your fault. And she was like, did you call the police? And I was like, no, because I'm terrified. And she was like, I need you to call the police. I'm going to be there with you. And her and her husband were, my spiritual parents were with me the whole time. But just having to make that decision to, to make that call was nerve wracking. So I did call the police. They did come out. Um, law enforcement did a horrible job. Uh, they basically blamed me. It was just kind of the repeated questions of like, well, were you sure that he raped you? Cause you did say you went on a date with him. Are you sure? Like, it was just that stuff. I picked them up out of a lineup. Um, we went as far as just trying to get a restraining order. Like we didn't even go to a trial or anything. I mean, like just trying to get a restraining order was a whole process. Um, I had to do a rape kit. So of course, if you've never gone through a rape kit, it's the most uncomfortable, most violating experience again, because again, you have to submit your body as evidence while telling the story again mm-hmm. for the 50 million times. Right. <laughs> so we're living. Um, yeah. So I did the the legal route. And when we had our day in court after he, like they couldn't serve him twice. So then when they finally served him, he comes to court with like a notebook of things that like he researched about me. Like, yeah, he came ready to kind of shoot down my character. And literally I had found out prior to court that he was a married man, something he never mentioned. OMG. Yeah. So I'm in court and again, we're trying to get a restraining order and I'm literally like, you know, telling what happened in a public court, an open court where other people are hearing it. Um, and I'm even sharing that, you know, finding out that he was married and the judge who was a white male judge, he asked him, he was like, well, did you tell her that you were married? And he was like, no, because I didn't think I should. And I'm like, see my point, credibility. Like, how can you take what he's saying and believe him? And literally the judge said to me, I don't believe he raped you. I believe that you're a woman scorned because he chose his wife over you. And then he got up off his bench, went into his chambers, maybe 10 minutes went by. Like he never even dismissed us. 10 minutes went by. He came back out. He was like, oh, y'all still here? Like case dismissed. So here I am having an emotional breakdown. And now I have a white male sheriff come over to me. And he's like, ma'am, if you don't stop having this outburst in this courtroom, I'm going to lock you up. No empathy. At all. Or respect. yeah. So I, I went on to, to go through therapy. Um, I was connected to the local rape crisis center and I just began to live my life. Um, and then, you know, fast forward June, 2021, I get a phone call from the same police department to tell me that they finally tested my rape kit. And I, by this time, I didn't even know that here in the United States of America, there's a, a backlog of untested rape kits in all 50 states. Had no clue, didn't know nothing exists. Because when I gave up my evidence, the common sense thing was, oh, you're going to do something with it. Right. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Why would you think they would just put it somewhere on the shelf? Right. And so for eight years, they did nothing with the kit. And so when I got that phone call and I was curious to wondering why now they were telling me that they did something and finding out that the law at the time that I was raped was if you knew your perpetrator and had any type of contact with them at some point, um, 
they didn't test kids because they didn't believe that if you knew a person, they could rape you. And I was like, I even said to the detective, I was like, do y'all not read statistics? Because literally the statistic says 55% of rapists are know their attacker. Yeah. Like it's not one of those, you know, the boogeyman in the, in the woods ready to attack. Like, unfortunately there's still law enforcement still believes that in 2022, but that was the moment. So when I got that phone call, I remember just praying and I was like, God, if I have to relive this part of my life, because here we are eight years later at the time, how do I make this bigger than me? Because I'm not reliving this just for the sake of reliving it. Like the devil is a lie. And so that's when I got into the advocacy work and have been blessed to have been able to train law enforcement and have conversations with the attorney generals. I just um, got a partnership with the courts here in the state of Maryland to really begin to change some of these policies and get them to understand what's really happening to victims, survivors, and thrivers um, when it comes to sexual assault cases and this horrible backlog, because there's literally over 100,000 untested rape kits in the state oh of, in the United goodness. States of America. That is such a horrible statistic, to be honest. That is a lot. And I really hate that every time a woman gets sexually assaulted, of course, it's her fault. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they pick us apart. Even the lady that was inebriated and the young man raped her and the judge mm-hmm. gave him a slap on the wrist. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just a horrible thing that women are the givers of life. No mm-hmm. one would be here without us. And yet yeah. we are so disrespected. Yeah. You know, so it's, with all that you've gone through, is this when mm-hmm. you turned your pain into power? Was this the catalyst for yeah. Purposely Faithful LLC? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I made a decision. I tell anybody like healing is really a choice. Um, there's no magic wand you can wave to like heal. <laughs> so back in 2020, 2021, God really put me on a journey or a process of healing the little girl within. So I did a lot of work. I was already in therapy by then, but I did a lot of work around the little girl, Leah, and really giving her voice because I found myself still battling with like anger issues and my emotions getting explosive. And I kept praying. I was like, God, why is it that I can't have healthy relationships and healthy friendships? And he just kept revealing because you have these little girl wounds that you have to deal with. So I really took it upon myself to start to deal with her. Um, And it really started with just acknowledging her presence and acknowledging her because as a little girl, nobody never acknowledged my pain. And so as an adult, it was very hard to acknowledge my pain. You know, the catalyst was really prior to me getting that phone call about my rape because I was engaged to be married and my fiance passed away four years ago. I hear that. And so I went to therapy because of the grief. And I always tell people God is so strategic because I was going to therapy because I was grieving, let alone in the midst of therapy. He was like, oh no, you've been grieving your whole life. You've been grieving since, (laughs) since you were born. Yeah, You grieve for every, everything that has been happening to you in your life, loss, you know, everything. Yeah. And I didn't recognize that until I was in counseling for this one particular grief. And so I did a lot of grief counseling and really started to unpack my childhood and really started to recognize that I was given the bad end of the stick. But also I remember when my therapist asked me um, a, a question about what made me happy and I couldn't answer because 
all I knew that made me happy was people, places, and things. Like I didn't, and then she was like, so then who's Leah? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> like Leah was her accolade. She was the people she was connected to. She was, you know, how many friends she had, the degrees that she had, but who I was at my core, I couldn't tell you because I didn't know. And there was that moment that I realized that I really had to do some work to really discover who I was, not just for myself, but for the work that God was calling me to do. So, because when he put me on the journey to really heal the little girl within and begin to turn my pain into power, he mm -hmm. said to me specifically, I will not let you coach not one person unless you walk out this process, because how are you going to help somebody else through a process that you won't even partake in? So you have to be the first partaker of your own process. Right. And so I just began to go through the process. Um, and even then, as I was going through the process, God was telling me to file the LLC and he was telling me to be a coach, you know, all these different things. And I was trying to run from it. I ain't going to lie to you. I was like, you know, I ain't coaching nobody, Jesus. Like, like I was trying <laughs> to really run from it. And, um, but he just kept sending me women and I was just like, like, why? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. But I eventually, you know, became obedient. And so turning pain into power really became my mission because I truly believe that I believe that if you've ever survived anything, whether that's a bad breakup, a divorce, sexual violence, domestic violence, like you, you have an obligation to help somebody else through it, to help somebody else overcome. I've had the pleasure of standing on so many platforms, sharing my, my sexual assault story and having women that have not told anybody that they've ever been raped and it's 13, 15, 20 years later and having them say, you just spoke up for me because it's so many uh, victims out here that have no voice. And so I, I went on this mission of like, I was, I, I used to say, turn your pain into purpose. But what I have learned is that you are already a purpose. Here's where Purposely Faithful came in because you were born with a purpose. Purpose is you, right? right? Yep, yep. Sometimes we just don't tap into it. But, you know, when people say I'm looking for purpose, I'm like, no, you should be looking at you because you are purpose. God created you with a purpose on purpose for a purpose. So I began to realize that it's not about turning your pain into purpose. It's really about turning your pain into power, because when you open up your mouth and you begin to testify and you begin to share your story, one, you you give the devil no more power. Exactly, because he don't hence, need it. Right. Hence the reason why the Bible tells you that you overcome by the words of your testimony. And so what I did was I wanted to give women the same, you know, women were saying to me, oh, Leah, you're so transparent. And I'm like, but you are too. You just need to open up your mouth. Because what people don't realize is that the reason why we stay stuck in our pain is because we're too afraid to tell us our pain. Yep. And so I had to learn that there was power in my voice. And yep. that when I spoke up, I wasn't just speaking up for Leah. I was speaking up for all the other Leahs in the, of the world that are dealing with the same issue that I'm dealing with, right? But just don't have the courage or the power or the voice to say it. And so Purposely Faithful LLC was literally me combining the two things that I, I believe I stand for is purpose and faith. Because without faith, I couldn't have my purpose. I'm telling you, girl, you saying all the things, all the things. <laughs> So explain what the Purpose Driven University is. Yes. So Purpose Driven University is my digital course school. Um, I started it because when I started coaching, 
I did it around book writing. I'm a seven-time published author, and people would come to me like, oh my God, Leah, have you been able to write all these books and yada, yada, yada. And so that was like something I was comfortable in. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't until last year when God was calling me to ship. And he, he literally said, had my pastor say to me, there's more to you than just the writer. Stop being so comfortable in the writing area. God wants to use you on a different platform in a different way. And I was just like, I mean, you know, com- you know, writing is comfortable. I just wasn't ready to stretch. <laughs> I wasn't ready right. to do all that. I- but I was like, all right, God, I'm going to be obedient. And so I began to pray and I was just like, well, God, how do I still meet a need? Because I still knew people that were still coming to me about writing books. And I was just like, well, God, I, I got to still meet that need somehow if I'm going to transition out of this type of um, coaching. And so he began to just drop into my spirit courses. And so I had connected with a lady. Um, her name is Ayana Webb. And she's like the course creation guru. And she did a five-day course building challenge. And so one of the things that she did in the challenge was she had us do market research, like asking your ideal audience what is it that they needed? So I knew a bunch of, you know, aspiring authors. I knew a bunch of first time authors and I just began to ask them some questions. Mm -hmm. And based on the information they gave me is where I got the blueprint to wrap out the course. So Purpose Driven University has um, five courses, one school, it's literally the building blocks of writing a book, everything from the fundamentals and how to get started to like, okay, because I had people that were like, well, I have a manuscript. I just don't know what I'm supposed to do next, right? So then there's a course for those who are like, well, I've written some. I just don't know what the next steps are. Right. And that teaches them about the ins and outs of editing and formatting and, and graphic design and all of that. And then there's a course um, that's all about um, pitching yourself. So I, I did a masterclass last year that I called it's all about the pitch about how I've been able to successfully be featured over a hundred times on different media platforms. And so my business coach was like, well, why not just turn that into one of your courses? So I have a course on how to successfully pitch yourself. And then I created a course um, called Master Your Message because what I learned when working with the women that I was coaching about the book writing process was that they were stuck in two places. They either didn't know their message or the message they wanted to convey, or they didn't know who their audience was. So Master Your Message teaches you both, teaches you how to identify your message, but also helps you to figure out who your audience is. Because I tell people all the time, your audience is key. And then the last course that I created was the road to entrepreneurship. And that really is for the published author, the person that is like, you know, I have this book, well, what am I going to do with it? Because people don't realize that my book literally was the start of my business. It was the start of the coaching. It was the start of everything. And so I I tell people that books are products. It's what you do around the product. It's the brand that you create. It's the business that you create. And so many people don't know that you can do that with a book. And so that's Purpose Driven University. Wow. That is awesome. You know, I might, I might need to be a pupil. (laughs) <laughs> I'm thinking I'm thinking about writing a book, but I'm, I'm like, okay, Amazon is there. So how do you get the pictures for your book? Like who puts the cover on and 
you know, yeah. all that stuff. So I might, uh, I might need to dabble in your university. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen, definitely. It's, I mean, it's a self-paced course. Um, once you enroll, you get access to it. You have the access for a year. So you have up to a year to use it. But I've had so many people that were like, man, this is a game changer. Like this is helping me to take everything I'm doing to the next level. And I'm like, this is awesome because that's what I wanted to do. I knew I did not want to coach in that area no more, but I was like, all right, I know there's still a need. So how do I meet the need? And then of course, that's another revenue stream for me. So that's where the course came from. How many women have you helped? So, you know, honestly, I've had, Thus far, I've had five people enroll, one of them being a male. And I was okay. actually surprised by that because usually men don't. Usually men, I personally do not be wanting to coach men because I'm like, ah, oh, y'all are so stubborn and I don't have the energy. Yeah. Exactly, because <laughs> they bring their ego to the course. Right. But lately, men have actually been reaching out to get my input um, about books and everything. And I just drive them right to the school. Like, Hey, I got a course for that. Cause I, what I'm doing now as a coach, um, I have my signature program is called hello purpose accelerator. Um, and I'm really working with that purpose driven woman. That's really ready to do both life work and business work. So it's a 12 week program and we really tackle some of those foundational issues because when I was going through my process, God was showing me how fear and doubt and imposter syndrome and my self-sabotage was really what was stopping me, that it wasn't everything else I thought was stopping me. It was me. And so I had to learn how to address those things and heal from those things and get to the root of those things. And a lot of the root of that was my childhood trauma, you know, and how I was born. And so with Hello Purpose Accelerator, I'm, my goal is to work with women who are ready to not only address those things, but they're ready to unlock their power and unlock their purpose. And so that's the current program and the new program. And I'm super excited about it. Well, I'm glad that you um, have all those different markets that you can still feed your purpose. Yeah. You have, you have the books, you have your coaching classes and you have this uh, university. I'm really glad that you actually turned your pain into power. Yeah. It was a process. And that's what I, I, I will say that I want to leave people with that is understanding that it's a process. Um, I always say healing is like open heart surgery with no anesthesia. Like you're not going to numb it. You can't numb it. You're really going to have to feel it. But it's on the other side of pain that you really do discover purpose because yeah. nothing that you go through, God is going to not use. I think T.D. Jake said it best, nothing you will go through will be wasted, right? Like uh -huh. the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, the stinky parts of your life that you're just like, no, can nobody know about that? Like God is going to use it all if you allow him to. And that's what I have learned on this journey is that there is another side of the pain. And really that's when you walk into your calling. Exactly. You discover who you are truly. Yeah. So I, I really, um, I really love that you, as Ian Levantet would say, did the work on yourself because you're breaking a chain. Yeah. Your, your grandparents, you know, they yeah. weren't all the way together. Your parents weren't all the way together, but you're okay. Yeah. You're okay now. And so now your children will be okay yeah. because now you would totally have a whole different perspective on how to bring them up. You know what I mean? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I did it for. I wanted to be the generational curse breaker yes. so that generational blessings can now flow. Cause I'm like, listen, the curse has been raining for too long. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm telling right. you and you, but you've opened the portal to, to great things. Yeah. So I'm glad that you really did the work. So this Thank is my you. favorite part of the show. Uh, before we close, I like to give the women a little something to uplift them. So what advice would you give women who have been assaulted and want to turn their pain into power? Yeah. So I think the first thing I would probably say is um, recognize where you are and be okay with where you are. Like, don't try to rush your process. I think a lot of times when we're smack dab in the middle of our pain, it's like, how quickly can I get, get over this? And what I have learned is that in pain is where new perspectives come. In pain is where God begins to show you the places and spaces where you need to grow and develop. Right. And that's why they say it's called growing pains. It hurts to grow, you know, like (laughs) it really does. And so I would say, be okay with where you are in your process. Um, The other thing I would say is be open to support and really having that tribe of people um, that you can be your vulnerable self with, that you can be transparent with, that, that can hold space for you and really identify those people in your life that you know that you can just say, you know what, I don't got it today. <laughs> I probably don't I have can. it tomorrow either, right? And be okay with that. Um, and then I would, last thing I would say is just trust the process. Like, is it rough? Is it gonna be times where you're gonna wanna throw in the towel? Is it gonna be moments where you're gonna wanna give up? Absolutely. I tell people even now, I still have moments where I'm like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't wanna deal with this, mm-hmm. right? But again, when you begin to grow, when you begin to heal, the perspective begins to change. And so now I face life's challenges a little differently. And I, I look at it like, okay, God, if I have to experience this, what are you trying to teach me? Oh, what is it, it that I'm supposed to learn in this? Because if you serve the kind of God that I serve, you know that he does not do anything to harm you. It's all for your good. And so going through your own healing journey will help you to change your perspective. I, I, I truly believe that people that are healing or healed people, they see things differently, they do things differently, and they hear things differently, right? And so when you begin to really deal with your own trauma, you begin to see things differently. You know, I began to see my mom differently when I started to deal with my own trauma. I started Uh to see her as the woman that she is trying to navigate life. You know, I started to hear differently. I was no longer hearing from the broken little girl that needed her mom. Like I started to hear from the healed version of Leah. And then I did differently. Everything about my life began to change because I did not have the same appetite for the things I used to have. So the boundaries you got put in place. I was great at saying no, still great at saying no. I tell people. I love that word. No, (laughs) it's a complete sentence. I love it. Like part of my self-care package. Yeah. Practicing self-care, right. And really practicing self-care because I think a lot of times for us women, especially women of color, we think self-care is like, Oh, I took a shower today. It's like, you're supposed to like, you should probably not leave the house funky. So (laughs) But really understanding what that looked like, what self-love really looked like and being able to do those things. And so those are the things that I would say. I love it. Girl, you give the sisters a whole lot of tea right there. I hope they have a really big cup. So where can people find you on your social handles? Yeah, so I'm on Facebook, Instagram, 
Twitter, Clubhouse, and TikTok and LinkedIn all as Leah M40. Oh, see, that's why you keep it consistent. People will find you <laughs> everywhere. They that's Google it. you, everything will come up. <laughs> that's it. Oh my goodness. Well, you know what, Leah? I really enjoyed our conversation. I, did I really too. did. I'd like to thank you for your time today. Um, it was educational and fun. You gave me a lot to think about because when I heard you guys talking in Clubhouse, I'm like, these women are motivated, you know? <laughs> and the way you introduced everybody, you just like gave it, like you just brought the hammer down. You just like, they, you were introducing them for the Oscars. Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank and you. I was like, okay, so you, you're really already empowering them. You're just hyping them up. Like you was the hype yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I really that... appreciated uh, meeting you in the clubhouse and, and the way you introduced me. I was like, she done told my whole spiel. Now what am I going to say? <laughs> you know, that's what the ladies usually say. They're like, so what am I supposed to say after you say that? And I'm just like, you know, I try to bring personality because I've been in clubhouse rooms where you're like, okay. You've been watching paint. I, right. So <laughs> I just try to be me. And so I, I love it. And I'm so grateful that we were able to have this conversation. Well, I am so super happy to have met you and you've been through a lot, but I'm, I'm glad that you thrive through your struggles and whatever we are going to be so inspired by your story and girl, you have made a new friend. We're going to have to connect again. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> but thanks again, girly. Peace and blessings. You too. Thank you. Thank you for joining this episode of the Save Our Sisters Unplugged podcast. Hopefully you found it to be inspiring and you've received great information you can use in your daily life. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your sis some love by subscribing on Anchor, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to rate and review. We're on Instagram at SaveOurSisters underscore 2020 and check out our YouTube page. If you would like to continue the conversation, join our Save Our Sisters group on Facebook. Until next time, sis, and remember to love yourself.